Hello, and welcome to Perspectives, a podcast by the Public Health Review, a graduate, student-led, online, peer-reviewed, open-access public health journal published by the University of Minnesota Libraries. My name is Caroline Sell, and I'm the 2019 podcast editor of Perspectives. Thank you so much for joining us and engaging in our public health conversations. In this episode, we wanted to learn more about healthcare economics. First, we talked with Dr. Stephen Trobiani, a neurologist at North Star Neurological Clinic, but who also has a very interesting background in healthcare economics from the provider's perspective. He also hosts his own radio show called Sustainable Healthcare, and we recorded this at his studio for his show. Here's our interview. Can you tell our listeners your name, your organization, your position, and your primary work focus? Um, my name is Dr. Stephen Trobiani. Uh, I am a neurologist. I have been practicing neurology for 35 years, uh, and I have my own private practice. That practice is called uh, North Star Neurological Clinic. That has had me involved in healthcare economics um, for the 35 years I've been practicing because there has been a lot of change in that time. When I began, uh, there were no physician networks. There was no managed care organization. Doctors basically saw the people who were willing to come see them. We would uh, do our best to diagnose and treat. Uh, and then we would submit a bill to the insurance company. And the insurance company would simply pay the bill, which is a really unique concept right now uh, because that doesn't happen anymore. There wasn't any oversight on behalf of the insurance company. Uh, they were the third party. The relationship was between the doctor and the patient. And people talk about doctor-patient relationships. Well, the doctor-patient relationship ended the day we started managed care because the doctor became the third party. The relationship is actually between the insurer and the patient. And as a result of that, we're allowed to see the patient only if we are in the insurer's network. And that gives the insurer more control than I think anyone, either in the physician community or in the public at large, ever wanted. Yeah, so for our listeners who might not be quite as familiar with this particular area of public health, how would you describe some of the main concerns surrounding healthcare economics in today's society? Well, affordability is certainly number one. Healthcare can't be accessed if it's not affordable. And our healthcare system uh, has become increasingly unaffordable with the passage of time since I've, I've come into practice. Going back to 1980, the average cost for health care, not for insurance premiums, but for all health care, everything, was $1,000 a year. $1,000 a year. It is now $15,000 a year uh, per person in this country. And it doesn't, the, the escalation doesn't seem to have any end in sight. Managed care was introduced to contain cost. If it has done so, it has done so miserably. Um, and I, I actually think that the whole approach to managed care has done nothing but actually serve to increase the cost because we've added a layer of bureaucracy uh, that didn't exist. Uh, we've added um, a profit center for the insurers that didn't exist. And uh, their profits are higher than they've ever been. All of that is making healthcare unaffordable. If healthcare is unaffordable, then healthcare is not accessible. What the government is talking about doing in increasing accessibility can't work if you don't uh, increase affordability. Could you give kind of a little elevator pitch for just the basic 
idea of managed care for some listeners who might not be quite as familiar? Uh, managed care, basically what the insurers did is they came to our Congress. They're pretty good at spending their lobbying dollars, uh, which now are about $400 million a year, on both the Democrats and the Republicans so they can make sure both sides uh, give them what they want. But what they wanted was total, absolute control. Their pitch was that doctors are good at, at practicing medicine, but they're bad businessmen. And therefore, they, they can't control the cost of health care. And the cost of health care is running amok because doctors are bad businessmen. If we as businessmen come in and control the healthcare community, then we can rein in the cost of health care and everything will become affordable. Well, as I said, it was $1,000 a year per person when they started this. If they were good at doing this, they fooled me because uh, I don't see how it's happened. Um, I think it's time for us to take a look at the whole managed care model and ask ourselves whether this is something that should continue because a 40-year experiment is a long experiment. Uh, and if it hasn't produced the desired results, maybe it's time for a change. What have been the biggest surprises in your work, um, both as a physician and um, through your research on healthcare economics? That can be surprises that are on the positive side, on the negative side, whatever comes to mind. Probably the, the biggest surprise was how expensive healthcare has become. Because uh, actually, over the course of the last 20 years uh, that this uh, managed care model has been working, Healthcare costs in terms of physician incomes have actually gone down. Physicians are making are working longer and making less. Uh, and ultimately, healthcare comes down to physician income because if I order a test, that test is ultimately uh, expressed in the income of some physician who's either interpreting the test or performing the test or whatever. So the fact that physician incomes are lower now than they were adjusted for inflation 20 years ago says that the cost of healthcare has been going up for something that has nothing to do with healthcare. And uh, when I looked into this, I what I found is that we've had a 4,000% increase in the number of administrators involved in healthcare since the management of healthcare delivery. And somebody has to pay for that administration, which has become enormous. Part of uh, the reason for that is the insurers don't know healthcare; they know business. And so, in order to micromanage the physicians, you have to you have to hire an army of people to manage each little aspect of healthcare. That becomes a very expensive model. We would be much better if we just ditched the entire managed care model, got rid of all the administrators, and let our doctors be doctors again. Let us deal with healthcare on an individual uh, level with our patients and actually personalize healthcare. The other thing I've, I've seen and, and patients complain about a lot is that healthcare has become uh, too cookie cutter. They go in and see their doctor. Uh, they don't feel like their individual problem is being addressed. And in fact, more and more it isn't because physicians are now being told they have to follow algorithms uh, in, their, in the practice. And those algorithms are certainly not tailored to meet the needs of any individual patient. Uh, if they don't follow the algorithms, uh, they're disciplined for not doing so. So it's becoming harder. The third 
uh, thing I found is that when I entered practice, uh, physicians were largely in private practice. Uh, we were self-employed, and that was uh, 85%, if not 90% of physicians. Uh, we are now looking at exactly the opposite. 80% of physicians are employed by a system and are therefore working for a system and following these algorithms that I talk about. And only about uh, 15 to 20% of physicians in this country are still self-employed. That, it, to me, is a, the most frightening statistic because your advocate in healthcare is your physician. And if the physician is no longer independent, then that physician is being given the choice of serving two masters. They either have to work for the employer or they have to uh, work for their patient and look out for the needs of their patient, but they can't necessarily do both. And that creates conflict, and those conflicts are not in the interest of our, our patients. So would you say that you are hopeful about the future of healthcare economics in the United States? And maybe you've touched on this a little bit, but um, maybe you could talk about some of the biggest challenges that we're facing right now and what you think some of the best solutions to addressing these challenges would be. Uh, I am not hopeful about the future of healthcare the way it, it's going, because right now, the Republicans uh, are basically wedded to the system as it is and don't seem to want to do anything to change it. And the Democrats want to socialize the system and basically have the government run our health care. Personally, I think the government needs to do neither. The government needs to get out of the way. The government needs to enable the private sector to come up with solutions because that's what the private sector does. And it does it better than governments have ever been able to do it. If you really want to find out how bad uh, the system could be, have the state take over music, because that would be a, an absolute travesty. Music is very individualized. Music is something that each composer comes up with from his own head, puts on paper, and delivers. It is the epitome of individualism. And quite frankly, I think we need to allow that in healthcare. We need to get back to a, uh, a manner in which the private sector allows us to create solutions to a healthcare dilemma. Otherwise, this dilemma is going to get worse. And the government's involvement has only served to demonstrate that. So I have solutions, first and foremost, that what I have proposed, I have proposed simply because looking at healthcare, it became glaringly apparent to me that the management of healthcare delivery is too costly and that we cannot control healthcare escalating costs by managing healthcare delivery. So I, I took another approach and said, well, what if we manage the finance of healthcare? What if instead of controlling the delivery of healthcare, we control the funding of healthcare? Uh, and I said, this might be a, a much more utilitarian approach. Uh, and I think it could work. So I, in looking at this, I simply said, what would we need to do that? Um, the, that's basically what insurance was when this started, but the whole concept of insurance has been destroyed through the management of healthcare. We're no longer spreading the cost out among a population. We're basically asking people to prepay their healthcare and let the insurers control the money that we're using to prepay it. So let's go in a different direction. Let's go back to the notion of funding and let's make it better than it was. Let's allow every company, because Let's face it, 85% of our healthcare is provided by our employers. Let's allow those employers to create a healthcare endowment fund within their company. And if you did that, we would actually solve our problem. My solution to this was just simply to say, look, if I'm a, an employer, it costs me 30% less to self-fund than it does to buy an insurance policy. So if I put that 
30% into the fund and allow that to grow year after year after year. Within 10 to 15 years at an 8% return, that account becomes self-sustaining. So you've now created a healthcare endowment within your company. That endowment will continue to double every 10 to 15 years from that point forward with average rates of utilization, creating a self-sustaining fund uh, that is owned by the employer. So the employer has a reason to do it uh, because if it's a privately held company, it increases the net worth of that company. If it's a publicly traded company, it increases the share prices of that company because it's an asset owned by the company. So that gives the employer a stake in doing so, and it gives the employer reason to exert good governance over those funds, and it gives the employee access to a healthcare fund that is only going to get larger. Now, the employee's responsibility, so the employees don't run amok, because I've heard that complaint, is the employee is responsible for their share in an HSA. So whatever the employee contributes on an annual basis to their HSA is their cost and is their only cost. Uh, so they don't have premiums to pay for, they don't have copays to manage, they don't have deductibles to manage, but they do have to fund their HSA annually. Uh, and those dollars have to be spent before the employer, employer's funds ever get tapped. Uh, and that uh, puts a, a little bit of, of uh, sanity into the system so people aren't basically going and getting anything and everything because uh, it's free. Uh, they're going and getting it because it's uh, affordable uh, and workable. That solution uh, I have toyed with names for for a long time. I finally came up with the name KEEP, which is Care with a K, Employer Endowment Plan. And uh, basically what it what it does is uh, allows the employer to create a healthcare endowment without spending a dime on healthcare more than they spend today, but eventually get to the point when that endowment is fully funded where they don't have to spend another dime ever on healthcare again, which is a, a, a tremendous boon to each and every employer in the country. Now, what that will do is give a lot of employers an incentive to do this, and that means more employers will participate. As they participate, the insurers uh, in the market will now have a meaningful competitor. That will cause uh, the insurers to revisit how they're pricing their insurance product, uh, how much profit they have to extract uh, on an annual basis, uh, and become leaner and more competitive, give us better products at a better price. So those of us who are not participating in a KEEP-type program are going to be buying insurance from an insurer, but that will now become more competitive and, and more properly priced. So just to follow up on that, for the employer side and for everyone who has employer-sponsored insurance, that sounds like it would be very useful for them. For individuals who are unemployed or underemployed, does that, would they go back to the market then? Is that kind of the, the idea? Yeah, they would be able to go back to the market. Um, certainly, we're never going to get rid of public programs. There are people who are unemployed and don't have a market to go to. But uh, again, when Medicare is involved, when Medicaid is involved, they're currently shopping the insurance market. And so if that insurance market is less costly, it's going to help. Uh, the other thing is they could, uh, Medicaid could bypass the insurance market if it wanted to. They could set up a program within the Medicaid system, very similar to what any of the employers is doing. They're not going to create an endowment because the government would never let them create an endowment, but they can take the tax dollars they have 
and go directly to the website of a third-party payer who will have on that website exactly what the doctors who participate are willing to accept as payment in full, what a pharmacy that participates is willing to accept as payment in full, what a hospital that participates is willing to accept as payment in full. And when I say participate, it's voluntary participation. It is not a network that is set up. So any doctor can voluntarily join the third-party payer for any one of these plans and be assured that he or she or the entity, whether it's a hospital, is going to be paid exactly what they have posted and not more, not less. Consequently, the consumer going to the website for the third-party payer uh, will know exactly what they're going to be paying and they can shop because I'm sure there will be competing third-party administrators as well and there'll be a lot of competing physicians, a lot of competing hospitals, uh, et cetera. So you're going to have the ability to uh, look. If I go to the website for Blue Cross now, I get one price, pretty much. And uh, that's what Blue Cross is willing to pay for the service uh, that's being provided. But it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, Fairview Systems, Alina, Regions Hospital can all post different prices for the same service on a website. And people can decide what they want to pay based upon where they want to go and the uh, level of service that they expect to get. That, what it does is it, it creates competition, it creates a marketplace, and it brings things back to where they should be. I don't think prices will go up. I think they will go down uh, from where they are. Uh, it will bring sanity into the system again. Do you think that a proposal like that would change the makeup of what you were mentioning earlier, the changes in how many physicians are in private practice versus systems? It just sounds like there's a little bit, there's a lot more aut autonomy given to the consumers, given to the physicians through this kind of thing. So would that change the makeup I, of it? I, I believe it would drive physicians back into private practice and it would restore the doctor-patient relationship. Um, one of the things that's driving physicians into group entity type practice is the concern about how to make a, a practice work. It's getting harder and harder and harder to make a practice work. I can tell you under the managed care model, those of us in private practice are paid less than those people who are working for a system. So why, if I'm coming out of residency, would I choose to go into private practice where I'm going to be paid less than I'm going to be paid if I go work for a system? The insurers are willing to pay physicians more if they can control that physician's behavior. Because quite frankly, the cost to the insurer doesn't lie in the, the what they're paying the doctor, it's what the doctor orders. And if I can control what the doctor orders and get that doctor to order things that are not costly, get that doctor to order things that are unfortunately not necessarily what's best for the patient, but what's best for the insurer, uh, I'm better off as an insurer. So insurers are driving people out of private practice and into uh, group practices. So I do have just one last, um, maybe broader question that might help our listeners piece all of these things together. Um, why are these very intricate and complex issues of healthcare economics something that everyone, not just public health professionals, should be concerned about? Because healthcare is something that we all need. Uh, it is a basic human need. I would say it is not a basic human right. Uh, rights are, are different than needs. We have a right to life. We have a right to liberty. We have a right to the pursuit of happiness. If we make health care a right, we have to infringe upon somebody's right to liberty because I have to literally enslave the uh, medical community in order to have them serve the population who is saying it is their right 
to receive health care. If the medical community says, well, you know, I don't want to provide health care for what you're willing to pay me, you'd have to enslave them, wouldn't you? It's a problem to call health care a right. It, it is not a right, but it is a basic need. And as a society, we have an obligation to provide basic needs in the best way possible. Personally, I think the best way possible is for the government not to do it, but for the government to enable the private sector to do it. Now, one of the things we need from the government to enable the private sector, and my solution is to change Section 419 of the IRS code because Section 419 prohibits an employer from accumulating funds in a health benefit account and therefore stops the employer from being able to create a health care endowment. Now, why is the government doing that? The only reason the government's doing that right now is to protect the insurance industry. It isn't the government's job to protect the insurance industry. It isn't the government's job to take over health care. It is the government's job to enable the private sector to solve our health care crisis. Is there anything that you might want to follow up on um, to add that we might not have touched on, clarification? I want to go over the entire outline of the structure that I have envisioned so that people understand the flow uh, of it and understand how the system would actually work. Because right now we've got bits and pieces, but I don't think those bits and pieces give people enough of a global picture uh, to be able to see how it would affect them. How would healthcare actually work for you as a person if you came into a system such as what I'm proposing. If, first and foremost, if we get rid of Section 419 in the IRS code and allow employers to accumulate funds in a health benefit account, that would go a long way towards solving our problem because you would then allow employers to create these endowments within their companies. So I, what I want to do is walk through how this works for every employee within a company were this to take place. But I also want to point out that right now we don't have a level playing field because the insurers are allowed literally to put 25% of their revenues into reserves that go untaxed, while the employer is allowed to put nothing into an account that goes untaxed. So uh, it, we need to level that playing field, and Section 419 needs to be changed to do that. Once you create one of these things, it is a very attractive program for the employee. As I pointed out, the employee's only cost is what they put into an HSA. So right now, for an individual, that's about $3,500. For a family, that's about $6,500. But there are no deductibles. There are no premiums. There are no copays. There is only what you put into your HSA. So if I'm an individual and I put $3,500 into my HSA, I don't now have another $3,500 deductible that I have to meet. My entire cost is done. And that doesn't get done as a single contribution. It is done through a payroll uh, withdrawal every two weeks and uh, is pre-tax. So it's, they're, they're tax advantaged. So that's the employer's, the employee's only contribution. The employee would then go to the website for the third-party administrator that has been hired by the employer to shop. So let's say I need to go see a doctor for joint pain. I would type in joint pain, I would get a list of doctors uh, that offer a uh, initial consultation for joint pain, and I would look at what those prices are. Uh, it would then be my choice as to who I want to go see. Uh, I would be able to see that person's length uh, of practice. I would know, you know how long he's been around, uh, what types of things he's been doing, what the reviews are, et cetera, et cetera. Although, anyway, all of that information would be there. It would be the individual's choice to go where they want to go. There isn't a network. There isn't somewhere they have to go. So the person goes, 
they get a bill. The bill gets uh, uh, submitted to the third-party administrator. The third-party administrator draws from the two accounts that are set up for every employee. Uh, There's the uh, HSA account, and then there's the employer's account that they have access to. It draws the HSA funds until those HSA funds are gone. Uh, And then when those HSA funds are gone, there is no further cost to the employee for that year. Any future expenses are going to come out of the employer's uh, endowment fund. And then the third-party administrator pays the doctor, and it's all arranged. Uh, there's, there's nothing the employee has to worry about. They don't have to worry about whether they can afford to go. They know they can afford to go. Uh, if they have a catastrophic disease, they don't have to worry about how much that's going to cost. Uh, it's, it's covered. So from the employee's standpoint, uh, this is good. From the physician's standpoint, it's good. So you would get to choose your doctor based upon reputation. You would get to talk with that doctor when you're uh, having a consultation, determine what you need uh, with that physician, and know that that physician is going to be able to do in terms of, uh, of diagnostic testing or in terms of prescriptions uh, what you and that doctor decided on, and that isn't going to be interfered with by an insurance company who comes along after the fact and says, well, you know, we don't approve it. Uh, I want you to order something else. And I've had that happen way too often. That disrupts the life of our uh, individuals uh, that we're treating, and there's no real benefit to that disruption, So, uh, except for the insurer. I think that's a really good <clears throat> overview and helps um, would help our listeners to better understand kind of from their perspective the benefits to them and how that would impact them yeah. in the future. What KEEP would do, and again, that's Care Employer Endowment Plan, would do is put control of health care back into the hands of the consumers of health care, back into the hands of the providers of health care, whether those are physicians. I hate the word provider uh, because I think the insurers created it to blur the distinctions between um, the level of care that people are getting so they can uh, encourage uh, lesser levels of care and pay for lesser levels of care. But the physicians, the pharmacists, and, and other healthcare professionals, and the hospitals that are involved in providing our care. And it puts control back in the hands of the employers who are paying for our care because they now have a, a system that they fund and that uh, they don't control, but it, they have some control over their cost uh, in the system, which is all the employers really care about anyway. They don't want to be bankrupt by a, a healthcare a system that's running amok. So it solves a world of problems. I am, again, not s- suggesting that this is the solution that will take care of everybody in the world, but I think it should be one proposal that is competing with a variety of proposals, and the market will then determine what works. The market in uh, free markets always determines what works. In capitalist societies, markets have served to make capitalism work and thrive. The reason this country is thriving is because we have embraced capitalism and we need to not lose that in healthcare. Thank you so much, Dr. Trobiani, for taking the time to speak with us. To add to our conversation, we also talked with Dr. John Nyman, an economist and professor in the Division of Health Policy and Management at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Here's our interview. Can you tell listeners your name, your organization, your position, and your primary research interests? Sure. I'm John Nyman. I'm in the Division of Health Policy Management at the University of Minnesota. We're in the School of Public Health, 
And um, I, I'm an economist. I have a PhD in economics from the University of uh, Wisconsin. I do research in a number of areas. I started out doing research in nursing home, nursing home policy. I did uh, some research on uh, physicians and physician behavior. Uh, and, but most recently, I've done uh, work on cost-effectiveness analysis, uh, especially on uh, evaluating new programs for health promotion in the workplace, uh, most recently at least, uh, and then uh, health insurance theory. And I sort of feel like those last two, cost-effectiveness analysis and health insurance theory, are my uh, two areas that I uh, sort of hang my hat on right now. And how long have you been um, researching those last two fields, like you mentioned, um, in, within healthcare economics, and how did you become interested in that okay. part of the subject? I, I've been here, I'm actually in my last year at the university, I'm retiring now, so I've been here uh, for 31 years, and uh, probably it's hard to remember when I got interested in, in uh, health insurance theory and cost-effectiveness analysis, but probably you know, 20 years ago or, or maybe you know, 25 years ago. But I started writing a, a lot in that area, probably in health insurance theory at the end of the 90s, 1999 or so. And how did you become interested in this subject? Well, I, uh, health insurance is such an important area. And uh, actually, I wasn't convinced that the models that were out there for trying to explain why people buy health insurance were, were right. And so I, uh, I sort of thought about that and uh, developed a new theory for why uh, people buy health insurance that uh, I hope economists are moving toward now. Uh, and then with regard to cost-effectiveness analysis, I uh, started teaching a course in that area. And uh, once I started teaching that, I got involved with the, the research. A lot of the research uh, was how to do cost-effectiveness analysis correctly. There were some uh, uh, recommendations uh, that were made from uh, what was called the Washington Panel about how to do that that I didn't agree with. And so I, I took on a, a number of those uh, recommendations and tried to straighten out the field in that regard. There were small areas, but uh, they were important, I thought. For listeners who might not be quite as familiar with this area of public health, how could you describe um, some of the main concerns surrounding healthcare economics and what health insurance theory that we are seeing to, in today's society? Sure. Health insurance theory is based on insurance theory. And uh, we're, we're talking about why do people buy insurance? Well, the standard answer uh, that has been made over many, many years, in fact, it goes back to uh, the 1700s, is that people uh, don't like risk, don't like the risk of a loss. They're what, what economists call risk averse. People have sort of ran with that, and one of the conclusions that uh, derives from this idea is that uh, if, if you buy health insurance, and you, so for example, and you consume more health care than you would if you didn't have health insurance, all that additional health care is inefficient, meaning that it costs more than it's worth to people. And I thought that was wrong. And I thought that a lot of people buy health insurance because 
they want to have that additional health care, and that's why they buy. And so what I've uh, been promoting is that the idea that people buy health insurance because they want to have uh, additional income or additional wealth, you know, something from the insurance company at a time when uh, they get sick in a pre-specified event, uh, like being sick, but it could be, you know, uh, uh, you want more uh, money if you, uh, if you uh, live longer, if you have an annuity, uh, all sorts of reasons why, but, but you want to specify this additional income occurs at exactly a time when you need it. And uh, that could be a bad state where you get sick, could be a state where you, you know, wreck your car, could be a state where, uh, as I say, you live longer, and that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing, but you know, you're specifying that state. And so that's, uh, that really changes uh, how, how people view health insurance, and especially the additional health care that uh, people consume uh, if they're insured. A lot of, uh, a lot of policy has been devoted to uh, imposing cost sharing, like deductibles and, and coinsurance rates, on people so they won't consume more health care if they get sick. But I, I view that as uh, being uh, wrong-headed, uh, in that what you want to do is you want to um, make sure that people have this additional health or this income that they can spend on health care. Now, another uh, sort of aspect of this, I'm, I know I'm going on a little bit on this, uh, but um, is how, how do you sort of get this additional income if you get sick? And one of the things that I've tried to promote is the idea that, you know, people with insurance have uh, face lower prices. Uh, if they get sick. And so instead of having uh, $1,000 or $20,000 if you get a certain illness, you're, you're given uh, health care at a lower coinsurance uh, payment rate. In other words, you pay 20% instead of 100% of the hospital bill or the uh, procedure bill. Uh, well, actually what that is, is a way of transferring uh, income from the people that buy insurance and remain healthy, put their premiums into the insurance pool, and then uh, uh, that, that money comes out of the insurance pool uh, for, to pay for the health care of the people that get sick. It goes to the providers, but it could have gone to the, uh, the people that got sick. What have been some of the biggest surprises that you'd say you've seen in your research in this area? In this area, I, I guess the surprises are, you know, this idea that, you know, the additional health care that you consume if you're insured, it's called moral hazard. And moral hazard was uh, viewed as generating a welfare loss by m almost all economists. Uh, what I view that as is because there's a big uh, income transfer effect there uh, that is actually welfare increasing. That, you know, people buy insurance actually because they want to have uh, access to health care that they wouldn't be able to afford. And that's all moral hazard, uh, but it's all uh, stuff that is, uh, or almost all of it, stuff that they would purchase anyway if they, instead of being paid off by having a lower price, if they're actually given the $20,000 that they need, they'd buy it because their health, health is so important. Are you hopeful about the future of healthcare economics and insurance um, here in the United States? 
and what are some of the biggest challenges you think we're facing right now? And in response to that, what would be some of the best solutions to addressing those challenges? Yeah, um, I think that one of the biggest problems is uh, in the United States is the, the prices that are being charged for things like drugs, uh, various uh, procedures, and, and uh, medical care. Prices in the United States are way higher than they are in other countries. And the uh, reasons why uh, has to do with uh, you know, the ability of providers and, and suppliers in the United States to, to charge these high prices because they have uh, market power, they have monop uh, monopoly power. They're able to uh, get these uh, high prices that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get if the government, as it does in other countries, negotiated the prices. So, in other words, what you need is the 800-pound gorilla buyer of health care, like you know, the government of Canada does with uh, drug prices, uh, to compete with the pharmaceutical companies in the United States uh, that have patents and you know and um, there's people there's drugs that are off patent uh, but uh, you know even those those prices are uh, are too high in a lot of ways that's the that's the solution that I see uh, and one way that other countries like in Canada is that if the uh, government became the single payer of, uh, of, of health for health care in that country uh, there would be no way that uh, uh, that you know those high prices could uh, persist because you have a, a countervailing uh, buying force, a monopsonist uh, in the form of the government that could bargain down the prices that the uh, suppliers want to bargain up. As you were explaining, how would you envision that? Uh, to like uh, happen yeah, in the United States. Yeah. Uh, well, a single payer would be uh, one way. Uh, Medicare for all would be another. Uh, one of the uh, solutions that was bandied about uh, probably uh, 10, 20 years ago was having a um, public option. And the public option has a lot of advantages in that, you know, politically it means that you're not imposing a, a, a big system on everybody. Uh, people would get a chance to um, purchase uh, health care if the public option was kind of like a Medicare uh, plan. They would get a chance to purchase that at the prices that are being charged for um, a public option. And the, uh, the thing about public option or like the assumption, put it that way, is that uh, the administrative prices, the administrative costs of running the plan, uh, and that, that includes the administrative costs of paying uh, for claims processing, paying uh, for insurance agents, uh, all that sort of stuff, including profits. Uh, that would be much lower in the in the public option in the United States. Uh, Medicare has about one or two percent uh, administrative costs, whereas uh, drug or whereas uh, insurance plans generally that are private have costs uh, administrative costs that are around uh, thirteen to fifteen percent. And so that would mean there would be a, a sizable difference in the, the, the prices, 
and people would respond to that by you know uh, choosing the public option. And eventually, you know, I think most of the people have been promoting the public option think that that's uh, a lot more demand. And eventually, there would be a natural uh, transition from you know public uh, or from private uh, insurers to uh, these public insurers or one public insurer. Could you expand a little bit on what you were discussing earlier about welfare increasing rather than decreasing? Welfare is a term that uh, economists use for uh, whether something is worth it. And when they think about welfare, they think about something where people are willing to pay more than what it costs to produce it. What it costs to produce is, you know, it's just a, you know, a cost. Uh, but if, if people uh, value something uh, a lot, they'll be willing to pay more for that. And that difference between what people are willing to pay and what what the cost is, that's really what economists are thinking about when they think about welfare. And so uh, the change in welfare uh, with regard to health insurance it used to be the case that, uh, or put it this way, conventional theory uh, regarded the additional health care that people consumed as being welfare decreasing because the cost was assumed to be greater than what people would be willing to pay. And what I have been promoting is this idea that health care is so valuable that um, if, if you get a... Um, a procedure that saves your life, and you were given this uh, uh, income that or you this this money as income that the insurer was would be paying for your care. You'd spend that money anyway because you value your your life and health uh, that much. And so the difference between what people are willing to pay given that they have this additional income from insurance and what they have to pay reflecting the cost uh, is going to be greater. And that would mean that there would be a, uh, a gain in welfare under the, how, how economists think about it. Why are these very intricate and complex issues of healthcare economics and insurance something that everyone, not just people who are working in the public health field, um, should be concerned about? Well, for one thing, it, it's a huge amount of money. I mean, it represents, you know, 18, 19% of the GDP, the, the whole economy. Uh, uh, and what's interesting about this is that in other countries, if you look at all of our peers, Great Britain, Canada, France, Italy, Germany, Japan, those are, you know, those are the G7 countries, those are our peers. They spend, on average, half what we spend uh, on healthcare, and what's in, most interesting about it is that they go to the doctor twice as often as we do. They're in the hospital twice as many days as we do. So if they're spending half as much and yet getting twice as many services, you know that the really the difference between between their systems and our system is the prices. How much is being charged per unit of uh, medical care? There's a huge amount of money that's being uh, coming out of the pockets of uh, consumers and going into these uh, the pockets of all the, the providers and drug companies too and uh, uh, health plans. Is there anything that you would like to add or expand upon? Anything that you think would be helpful for our listeners? Again. 
uh, we spend twice as much. Uh, we go to the doctor uh, half as often, but it doesn't really mean that we're twice as healthy. Uh, infant mortality rates are much higher in the United States than they are in these other countries, and so is the life expectancy. So you can't really explain it by you know, saying that we're that much healthier. Thank you so much, Dr. Nyman, for taking the time to speak with us. We hope that these public health perspectives on healthcare economics provide our listeners with new or better understandings of how we are all impacted by these issues in public health. Thanks for listening to this episode of Perspectives. We'd like to extend a big thank you to our featured guests for taking the time to speak with us and share their expertise with our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to check out the other episodes of this podcast, as well as our journal publications. You can find all this and more at our website, z.unn.edu slash pubhealthreview. Thank you again for listening to Perspectives. Perspectives.